And we're back with another podcast of The Insignificant Others. I'm Brett Featherston, and I can't believe we're already on episode number four. We've done this three times. This is our fourth one. Our guest tonight is awesome. Can't wait to introduce you to him because everybody has a story, and I'm joined, as always, by Rob Flint. Rob, what's your story? Uh, it's not any... I don't have anything new to share, per se. Nothing has changed um, that I want to share with our, our vast listening audience, but I have a few hot opinions that I'd certainly like to start us off with. Please do. So, um, I'm sure like many people, um, even yourself, uh, Michael, I know that you frequent this place regularly along with your lovely wife, but um, Starbucks is top of my mind. And, and it has nothing to do with you know, the fact that they won't put, what, Merry Christmas or Christmas on, on their nice, shiny red cups. It has everything to do with their obsession with wanting to know what my name is every time that I place an order. And you, know, you would think that that's a simple thing to ask, but since I go every day of my life... What's your name again? Yes. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I can't remember. What's your name again? No, they, but but it, 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 it's, Still it's so important that, they, that it holds up the ordering process... Like the lady can't pass the cup on to the next person unless she literally writes my name down. And and it first started off with, why do you need to know my name? And I would ask politely. And she didn't really have a good answer. I don't know if they go to the Starbucks Academy and, you know, Mr. Starbucks there is, you know, waving his hand at somebody saying, you have to ask for that name and write it on the cup, right? So she didn't have a good answer. And I'm like, okay. So then the next day, she, uh, this other person took my order, and they said, you know, sir, what's your name? And I again asked, why does it matter? And then I just knew that it, you know, I was never going to get a right answer, so I started messing with the names to see if they would take it serious at all. So, I, you know, I, one day I think it was Anglo-Saxon, <laughs> and they literally wrote Anglo-Saxon on the cup. Um, and then... <laughs> then then I, I got more crude as I progressed in my my frustration with this whole process. Um, and, you know, I know that we have uh, very few children listening to this, so I'm going to kind of take a, take a dive here. But um, I'm like, surely they're not going to put this name down. And there was nobody in the store, Michael. It was literally just me. It was like at 5.45. And they still needed now. to know your name. They still needed to know my name. Like, they couldn't write, they couldn't write blue shirt or, you know, glasses, or, you know, heavy-set, middle-aged man with gray speckled hair, right? That would be pretty easy to do. So I look at this person, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, my name is Craven Moorhead. <laughs> and and they, 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 their eyebrows didn't perk up, their face didn't lift, and I, I am not joking, they wrote that on the cup. And I'm not on Facebook anymore, and I don't, you know, have any social media presence. But that would have been a prime opportunity for me to take a picture of the cup <laughs> and then post it and share it with my friends. That'd right? be perfect. I was going to say it's definitely from Starbucks Academy, right? I mean, they're definitely being coached to do they, that. They and are. I, but you know, I'm a. It's uh, what I do. I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm thinking, you know, there is a reason for it. And a lot of times, it's pretty darn crowded in there, and it's nice to hear, "Hey, Michael, your drink is ready." But when you're the only guy in the store, that yes. makes it a little bit different. You know, I don't different. know that it's all that necessary. So, and then here's the other thing that kind of bothers me, and it, maybe you've noticed this because you know, again, we go to the same Starbucks. So um, we 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 had the same crew for two, three plus years. Right. And yeah, they've I know where this is going. Completely turned over, and 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 they've got the C team working now got for the sure. C team working and. And the, the, the fact of the matter is I'm sad because these are people that arguably I have more conversations with than my own wife, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I say that lighthearted. Um, but you build a relationship and a bond with them. You know, you feel like you really know them and, and they know you and they know what you want to drink. You, can, you don't even have to give your order. They just kind of wink at you and they just, you know, nod their yeah. head and we're good to go, right? It's served up. You're happy. They're happy. And they're not asking for your name. They're not. Yeah, they're not asking. They actually know your they, name. They know my name. And so I feel kind of jilted, I don't know if it's the right word, but may, a little bit of a betrayal because like, I wanted them to tell me that they're no longer going to be at the Starbucks from here on out. I feel like I've 
Or you should be part of the personnel decisions to be Absolutely. able to say. They owed you a goodbye. Is that what you're they saying? Did. I felt, yes, they, they owed me a goodbye. I didn't get my two weeks notice. You didn't, yeah. So, so do, you, do you not feel a little bit disgruntled? I feel, I felt like I had a bond, and I mean a genuine bond, and I'm not, this is not a joke, but you know, they're nice folks. They, you know, you see them every day. And so I want to know what happened to them. Like, I want to like, you know, say, where, where, did, where did they go? I miss them. Yeah, one of those guys I worked with at the Olive Garden restaurant all through undergraduate. It was crazy when I walked in there the first time. Keith, Joel. Oh, yeah. 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 He's not there anymore? No, he's not there anymore. I've known him forever. But I do have, I'm going to put on my doctor hat. I've got the prescription for you, Rob. Yes. Because I have also grown tired of the fact that it's a totally new crew. and They're bad. They're Yeah, really they're working on the C team at best. And... It's the mobile app. I hate to say it. It's the mobile app. I, my wife was doing that, and finally I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try that. I download that thing, and you know what I do now? Right as I'm leaving the house, I put in my order, and I walk up. There's a line. I don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to give anybody my name. I don't have to say anything. I walk over, and there's my two coffees, mine and my wife's coffee. Of course, there's a tag with my name on it yeah, and yeah, my coffee, it's... but there's no more interaction anymore. Okay. And it's, 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 you're not going to have this problem anymore. You're not going to get to know them. They're not going to get to know you. They're not going to ask you for your name. You're going to feel so much better. Okay. You, you've taken out the human element completely. Totally, I'm which going... is just the opposite of what I normally do. But in this instance... It was required. Okay, oh, that, that's a good. So I I will be happier than I am now, but even more detached. So so basically, my my days of having substantive relationships with my Starbucks baristas are over. Correct. Okay. Correct. And even your friends, because um, you're not waiting in line for five ten minutes anymore. You're literally in and out of there. And yeah. I don't know. I kind of like it. Okay. Well, that's that's Brett. That's. That's what's really been bothering me. I've got and I some... can understand why. <laughs> I mean, at least you've got something really important bothering me. Well, you know what? If, if that is, is my problem, then I, I'm living a fairly blessed life. <laughs> I would say so. Point. I would say so. I'm but it, but, but listen, it's the little things that bug you. It does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So uh, you, you've heard him so far, our guest tonight on the Insignificant Others podcast. And, and please... You can listen to us on SoundCloud. You can listen to us on iTunes. We have a Facebook page. Go look for the Insignificant Others podcast on Facebook. Like us, rank us, or rate us, review us, whatever it is, on iTunes, please, and give us your feedback. But we're really excited tonight to have Michael Petticolis with us as our guest. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a really fascinating story. Yay! There we go. Studio audience. Yeah, I need like the ticket. The, you know, the... the uh, we, we need a soundboard. The soundboard, yeah. <laughs> we need a soundboard. I need groups back there doing yes. this. That's right. that, that, that'll be so. episode 100. <laughs> time we have that. So you've got a fascinating story. You, uh, you spent 10 years as a lawyer practicing law, and then you came to your senses and, and got out of that horrible profession to become the respectable beer brewer you are today. Yeah, that's true. Although I didn't 100% completely give up the law. Like I still have my law license. I still am available for family and friends, but I just stopped taking cases, right? Yeah. And slowly uh, kind of weeded out all that work. I thought I would build up the brewery uh, to a point where it could operate on its own and I'd go back to practicing law. And then, you know, four years later, I'm finding, God, I'm having a lot more fun running a brewery than I did Imagine practicing that. law. So yeah, I don't ever see me going back to do that full time. So, so give us a little bit, share with us your story of uh, up until you started brewing beer, kind of, you grew up in El Paso. What happened after that? And, and why law? And Man, all I that? could go in so many different directions, but yeah, I'll start with that. Why law? Um, I'm actually a fifth-generation Texas trial attorney. My great-great-grandfather, Alfred Brown Pedicles, and I've got a brown ale called the Alfred Brown. And, and the ghost of Alfred it, Brown. And the ghost of Alfred <laughs> Brown, which is a, a kind of a, we put ghost peppers in Alfred Brown, and so we have the ghost of Alfred Brown. But that was my great-great-grandfather, and he opened the first Pedicles law firm in Victoria, Texas in 1877, something like that. He he really interesting guy. I mean, fought in the Civil War in Texas and New Mexico, which... Obviously, wasn't like the hotbed of the Civil War, but these guys, his his journals are the best known account of what actually happened in Texas and New Mexico during really? the Civil War. Yeah, it's been published. It's called Rebels on the Rio Grande, and so it's his journals, it's his sketches. I mean, he was an artist. Um, it's super interesting book. I mean, these guys, I remember reading it, and they marched from San Antonio to El Paso, 
And if you've ever driven that, like a, that's like a 12, 13-hour drive, and these guys marched there, you know? I don't want to walk a mile in that land. Oh, God, no doubt about it. But so he, you know, was the first in this line, and his son was um, Warner Marion Pedicolas, who was the first Chief Justice of the Court of Appeals in El Paso, and I think is still to this date the youngest ever serving Chief Justice. And then his son was Warner Marion Pedicles, who was my grandfather, and my father, Ed, his son, my father, Ed Pedicles, they both practiced in El Paso for their entire careers. And so when I was raised, I always kind of thought, yeah, you know, I might want to be a lawyer. It's kind of predetermined. You were going to be a lawyer. Yeah, whether there was never really any pressure. Oh, you know, you need to go to law school. And interestingly enough, you know, in each, you know, uh, generation, there was always just one lawyer. Like, you know, my grandfather had five brothers and sisters. He was the only lawyer. My dad, there was four brothers and sisters. He was the only lawyer in my family. There's three of us. I'm the only lawyer. There was always just one. So there was really never any pressure. But it, growing up, it was always just kind of in the back of my mind that, you know, maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll do that. I always believed in education. I know I would go to school and I'd get educated. And so, you know, I, to kind of further answer your question, once I graduated from uh, high school in El Paso, I moved to the wonderful city of Lubbock, Texas, right? Uh, I know you're very familiar yeah. with uh, Lubbock, Texas, and the beauty of Texas Tech and the Red Raiders, but Lubbock didn't just have, it wasn't utopia for me. Um, I, I decided, you know, two and a half years after living in Lubbock that I would move to Dallas. I, I moved here with the girl I was dating at the time, and that's when I started school at the wonderful University of Texas at Dallas and started to really become interested in the education process. And After I uh, graduated from UTD, I kind of decided about a year after that, well, it's time to go to law school. And so went to Houston, South Texas College of Law, and crammed three years of law school in two and a half years so that I could keep my loans to a minimum and went and practiced with my dad for a year in El Paso and then moved back here to Dallas um, to live with, along with my now current wife and uh, started practicing here in 2000, opened my own firm in 2005. That's awesome. Oh, so you have three kids now, right? You got it. Three kids, <clears throat> married, a brew. Uh, 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 you own your own brewery now, and you own 100%, no investors, no debt, which is fantastic in and of itself. Tell us a little bit, though, before we get too much into the in what you're doing now with brewing. What was it like growing up in El Paso? I mean, oh, man. I, I, I think of El Paso <laughs> as just, you know, a, a little bit like Breaking Bad. You know? <laughs> it's a lot like Breaking Bad. Um you know, that's the funny thing. That's probably one of the reasons I didn't enjoy Lubbock, Texas all that much. I mean, I literally was walking across the border. I mean, El Paso is on the border of Juarez, Mexico. From downtown El Paso, you can walk across a bridge onto a strip in Juarez, and there's bars and restaurants and uh, dance clubs. And so literally, I think it was, I was 15 years old, you know, back when me and my buddies were stealing California coolers from my parents' uh refrigerators and we would start walking over the border to Juarez, Mexico. I mean, we would go to Happy's in downtown El Paso and get our very unofficial fake IDs. You know, they were just great. The worst thing ever, but it didn't matter. You could have anything in Juarez. And so we started <laughs> this going is over pre El Chapo. The, oh gosh. This is, this is, this is when it was safe to go yeah. over there. Right. And, um, big, I'm a big fan of the culture now because of this kind of how I was raised. We, I love the music. I love the colors. I, you know, um, I, I, I'm a big fan of Mexico, but I mean, I spent the next three years all through junior high and then into high school going to Mexico, going to Juarez, if not once, twice a week. I mean, summer would roll around and Wednesday night was go to the dog track night. Thursday night was drink and drown at Sarawak's. It was $5 to get in and drink everything you want. And then Friday night, you'd go to the Kentucky Club or the Tequila Derby and buy your buckets of beer. And it was literally five beers for $2, right? It's Dos Equis or Carta Blanca or Pacifico, but five beers for two bucks. When I started going to Juarez, you're going to, you know, when I, you're going to love this. When I started going to Juarez, tequila shots were 10 cents. So oh, we would, God. we would buy $10 tequila shots. And then by the time I graduated, inflation was hit and it cost a whole quarter. It, oh, <laughs> it's terrible. But that probably played into why I didn't enjoy Lubbock all that much. Because once I got up there, you know, all those, um, high school kids that, had come from Dallas or all over the state and are in, you know, Lubbock. And we're talking about like, what did you do? And they're like, oh, well, we went cruising around. We would drive around. I'm like, cruising around, driving around. And so we're all going to 
I don't know, the Virgin Club or wherever it was. I can't even remember the names of all the places there. And they're just going crazy. And to me, it was like, man, I, I kind of experienced all that already. So, yeah. you know, there was no newness. I felt like it was something I had already done, except now it was a hell of a lot more expensive, <laughs> you know. Um, so I definitely think that fed into, you know, why uh, Lubbock, Texas wasn't really uh, the place for me. And kind of glad it turned out that way because it, you know, fueled my fire to move to Dallas and I love it here, man. I, I, I love Dallas. I've told people for years, it, it, you know, it may not be a pre- great place to visit. Yeah, you know, it's not we a great place we don't, to visit. We've got restaurants and we've got shopping and sporting teams. And you can go see where JFK got shot. It's a, other than that, there's no tourist attractions. But it's a great place to live. Yeah, it is. It's a great it place is. to live. Our weather's awesome. Our property's great. You know, and, so, and, and that's one of the reasons I kind of got into the beer thing. I, I wanted to give this town something, give it some culture, right? Give it some beer culture, some reason that people would want to come to Dallas. And I know that was like kind of pie in the sky, but looking back from where the craft beer scene was five years ago to now, I mean, it's, uh, we've got a really thriving, good scene in North Texas Absolutely. of not just my brewery, but several really quality, high quality North Texas brewers. So did you practice law in Dallas? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of cut my teeth at a firm called Cooper and Scully in downtown Dallas. Yeah. I worked there for four years doing some insurance defense. And they were typically your lower uh, your lower damage claims, your car wreck claims, stuff like that. But I loved it because it got me in the courtroom, right? I, they would let me go try cases that were worth forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, you know? Um, but then where, you know, my funnest case there was I represented three of the uh, Red Pots, Texas A&M students who had been sued in connection with the Texas bonfire collapse. Oh, right? really? Yeah. And that was a super interesting case, probably to date, if not the most interesting, definitely top two most interesting cases that I ever worked on. I mean, I know more about Aggie folklore than I ever thought I would know. and. Would care to know. What's that? Would care to know. (laughs) What? Would care to know. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) Much more than I'd ever want to know. But so I did that. And, but much like my father and my grandfather and my great grandfather and great great grandfather, I kind of always thought, man, I, 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 if I'm going to do this, I want to, you know, I want to own a place. I want to have it and do it myself. And, you know, when I bring in that big case, you know, be the one who, you know, benefits from it. So, you know, what, my route really is I went to another firm that said, Oh yeah, you know, we'll take care of you. We'll give you better raises, better bonuses, this and that. And I worked there for a year and December rolls around and my bonus is crap. And my, uh, raise was ridiculous. And I'm like, you know, this isn't what we talked about. And so in February, I'm like, you know what, I'm out of here. And February of 2005, that's when I opened up my own law firm. Thank God. So you did that for six years, roughly? Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, I've never really stopped. Um, I continued to have that office, that location right there in Preston Commons until just about two months ago. It really took until then for me, yeah, to me to actually, I'm like, why the hell am I paying rent um, at this place? You know, I don't, I'm not actively So you kept the leash on that just in case? But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm... Man, I'm a like I said, I'm a big believer in education, and I spent a lot of money investing in myself to go to law school, and I'm very proud to be a lawyer, frankly. Um, and so I wasn't going to give it up. I want to be available to you know my license is still active. I can go file a lawsuit right now if I want to, and frankly, it comes in very handy um, either through business, you know, handling some whether it's negotiations or conflicts that arise with the brewery, or just in, in your everyday life, yeah. you know, just like you know dealing with an insurance company. Um, you know, it ni- it's nice to have that hammer behind you, yeah. no pun intended, but it's nice to have that hammer to say, well, you know what? I'll just, and I'll and just no see trademark you. infringement on Brian Longcar either. But that's, <laughs> yeah. that's different. He's, he's the Texas hammer. I make the velvet hammer. So yeah. before, <laughs> I, I, know, I know that I'm interested, or, or I'm sure you are too, Brett, as far as the, the decision that you made while you were practicing law to then start your own brewery. But, but talk about, you know, your, your exposure to craft beer um, at an early age, um, influences in your life up to that point. So it wasn't like, you know, you were practicing law and you walked into a bar and had a craft beer and said, hey, I can do this. Yeah, I mean, there's, no. There's a lot more to a- that story. Absolutely. I mean, well, as I referenced, it really started back in Juarez, Mexico. You know, I'm drinking all these Mexican beers, Tecate, you know, all right, Tecate, that's awesome. And, um, you know, so, when we so, were in- so we talked about this a little bit before the podcast started. Do you really look at those Mexican beers, Dos Equis and Tecate, as superior to kind of the American beers, the mainstream American beers? No, no, not 
necessarily. Maybe some of them, yeah. Like yeah. Negro Modelo, give me a Negro yeah. Modelo any day over any of your classic American Pilsners, your Bud, your Miller, your Coors. So yeah, for sure those. But those were I really referenced them because they were where it started for me. That's what I started it was different drinking from. Your yeah, typical American yeah. right. You know, there was Miller Lite that we would get out of my mom's fridge and try to replenish by finding some stranger to buy us beer at the end of the weekend, which was always a little bit dicey, but somehow we made that work for quite some time. But that's where it started, you know, drinking those beers. And then, you know, we kind of got into your Michelob dries and I think Michelob dry, me and my buddy Dan Austin, that was kind of our beer of choice. You know, we thought that was the beer. And then when we got to Lubbock, you know, I didn't have any money at that point, right? So we're buying the ridiculous Keystone lights and just the worst of the worst. Did you ever get Lucky Lager? God, I don't. It's very possible I did. There's a couple. I remember there's one that was like called Olay or something. I mean, it was terrible. Do you remember Mickey's? No, Mickey's Big Mouth. Yeah, yeah Big yeah. Mouth. That green grenade bottle. Green is terrible color for a bottle, by the way. We had a softball team called the I don't know Lucky Logger softball team or something. So you could buy a case of Lucky Logger for four ninety nine. Was it a black can? Uh, no, I think it was white with kind of a red label, very generic looking, and, and it was. It has to be the worst beer ever made. But it was cheap, so right, and that's what it, that's what it was all about when you were driving down the strip, getting as much as you possibly could. I remember going on a camping trip to Paladura Canyon when we gave plasma to go get money <laughs> to go get money to buy beer. Oh, I did. We that. bought like yeah. three cases of beer. There were three of us, and I remember at the end of the night, we're like, "That's the, still to this day more beer than I'd ever had." And we, I, I drank twenty beers that night camping <laughs> that night. I'm like, you know, but which is just the opposite of what I'm doing now. But I, I mean, I guess I digress, and so. Once I moved to Dallas, uh, you know, I bartended through uh, all through undergraduate over at the Olive Garden right there at 635 in Greenville. I worked there for like three or four years, something like that. But that's when I started drinking, you know, some of these other beers, your your, uh, uh, Sierra Blanca and Anchor Steam, they kind of were craft beers. But really the biggest effect on me was a buddy I met named Greg Matthews. And he is actually who I refer to now as my brewing sensei. I didn't know at the time, but I actually became very reliant upon him on him, you know, 10, 15 years later in my life. But at the time he had lived in Germany and he came back over here and he's like, Oh man, you've got to try this. You got to try these exports, these export beers. And so he cracks open a Julius Ector Hefeweizen and a Franzix Connor Hefeweizen. And I remember drinking those beers thinking, Oh my God, man, this thing's awesome. Really super good. And so then we started hitting up that two rows that was open on Greenville and drinking their German Hellas and that's kind of where it all started to go, you know. Then I got into, you know, so what does your Greg- Sam Adams, your fat tires yeah. from New Belgium, and then just more and more. And then by the time I got to law school, it was pretty much all craft beer all the time. So what does Greg do now? Is he a brewer also? Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of lost touch um, for quite some time. And shoot, I don't know when exactly we got back in touch. Maybe 2000, 2001, 3, 4. Heck, now nah, probably later than that. Maybe even... 2005. I was practicing law anyways. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm brewing beer in Chicago. I'm like, brewing beer? You're doing what? So yeah, he had gone through the American Brewers Guild and that's that's where I ended up going. But he said, hey man, come out and visit me and we'll brew some beer. I'm like, yeah, okay, sweet. So I flew out there and you know, kind of got hooked. I'm like, wow, this is really awesome. This is cool. And I just helped him brew. And at the time I still didn't have any thought about opening a brewery or anything like that. But it was just kind of a you know, hey, uh, you know, my buddy's operating a brewery and this is a killer way to spend the weekend and had a good time. And uh, so ever since then, he it also turns out we have a very common interest in soccer. And so we started talking. And ever since that day, we've kind of stayed very, very close friends. And after I took my schooling, and, you know, I guess I should go back a little bit. Maybe you want to hear about why I went from the law career to... No, to, no, this is, no, way, no, no. This is <laughs> way more interesting. <laughs> okay, well... Um, uh, no, no, seriously, take us back. Uh, so, because you mentioned Greg earlier, so I wanted to explore that a little bit, because I'm. Uh, you said he's a really big influence on how you got into craft beer, but take us back to your lawyer. What was the whole transition like... So, and what what is your wife saying when you yeah go, when you came listen home I want to quit practicing law and, and brew beer right um, the story is going to probably surprise you somewhat uh, what had happened is 
you know, uh, started practicing, have, had my own firm in 2005. And, you know, by 2010, I kind of came across a list of goals that I had put together for myself to, uh, uh, goals that I wanted to accomplish in the legal industry, right? I kind of came across that list that I had written before law school. And I started going down the list and I realized, God dang, I have like accomplished every single thing that I set out for myself before I even started in this industry. And that kind of signaled to me, I've never been a guy who can kind of just go through the motions. I need a challenge, right? And so at the time I had, um, you know, we had been through 2008, right? And the financial crisis at 2008. And I see all of my accounts, my retirement accounts, just diving, right? It just I'm thinking, why the hell are we invested in all these, you know, companies that are either cooking their books or acting fraudulently? And so I'm like, yeah, I, I want to do something else. I want to try something on my own. And as I mentioned, I've got two passions in life, right? Beer and soccer. And so I'm like, yeah, I need to turn to my passion for beer or so, you know, I want to, that'd be really cool. I think it's awesome that yeah. people who like make their passion, their do job. Yeah. So, you know, I initially thought, oh, all right, it's an easy thing. There's FC Dallas. And I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, the problem with, you know, being a wrong side of 30 left knee replaced MCL soccer players, you know, you're not going to get on the field for anybody. And I was never <laughs> that good, but you know, I really couldn't even get my foot through the door with FC Dallas. You'd had to start way on the bottom. And so that was a problem for me. I'm like, man, I want to do something else and I can't really figure out what it is, but I don't want to go be a low man on the totem pole. Right. I was used to operating my own law firm, showing up at seven, leaving at four. If I want to, I didn't want to hear, Hey, Petticolas, it's four. Where are you going? Where are you going home? It's like, dude, I got here at 7am, man. You showed up at nine 30. That's why you're here till six 30. So I didn't want to have to go through that. And we had received a business plan to invest in another brewery that was opening up. And so my wife and I were seriously considering investing in it. And we were talking about what, what do we like about the plan? What do we not like about the plan? And then one night we're talking about it and she goes, why don't we do this ourselves? Yeah. And I'm like, what? And, and she's like, well, why don't we do this ourselves? So it was her idea. It literally was hers, yeah. And that's kind of when the proverbial light bulb went off over my head saying, yeah, man, why don't we do this ourselves? We're, she's from the pharmaceutical industry where being first to market is yeah. everything, yeah. right? I mean, Viagra is the first drug to do what it does. And, you know, everyone knows Viagra. There's a bunch of drugs that do what Viagra does now, but everyone knows Viagra. It's all about first to market. And she's like... What, what is it that Viagra... I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, she's like, why would we invest in this, you know, the 10th brewery to open in this market where we can open up at that time? I started to do research. Dallas was, Dallas was the largest city in the United States without its own microbrewery. I mean, there was only two microbreweries in North Texas. There was RAR in Fort Worth and Franconia and McKinney. That was it. And so that's when I'm like, hmm, yeah. You know, I really why don't I do this? So in 2010, that's when I wrote the business plan for the brewery and I enrolled, you know, Greg said, man, go to the American Brewers Guild, take their intensive brewing science and engineering course. And that's exactly what I did to figure out how to scale up, you know, uh, production from the little five gallon batches that I was doing in my backyard to the 500 gallon batches that we do at the brewery. So when did you enroll in the American Brewers Guild? That, that was, was in 2010. Yeah, 2010. So in 2010, I enrolled in the year. guild and I wrote that plan. That's that's a one year course. Uh, it actually it was a, it's more like a half semester course. It's like taking ten hours of undergraduate work, something like that. I mean, you can do much more extensive schooling, um, but it certainly it was a great course. I would recommend it for anyone who is like seriously thinking about commercial brewing. I, I could not have gotten where I am now without taking that course. But I mean, I, I, I where did cut, you go to take that? It's, um, I mean, most of it's correspondence, right? They're sending you okay. CDs and things like that. You're getting online once a week. You're taking quizzes once a week. You're taking a midterm, you're taking a final. And then at the end, you're actually traveling where we went to was, was Windsor, Vermont. So I went and did a bunch of lab work at, you know, at the Harpoon Brewery. People know Harpoon Brewery yeah. as a Boston brewery, but that's their little, you know, kind of jewel. I was at the production plant in Windsor, Vermont. And um, so I kind of cut my teeth there. Um, but I really kind of always say that brew school is much like law school. In law school, they don't teach you how to be an attorney, right? They teach you legal theory. You kind of have to figure it out yourself. And I right. always thought, you know, it's the same thing with brewing. They taught me the theory of brewing, but that's when I called up my buddy Greg, right? Hey, 
can I come up and brew with you? So yeah, absolutely. Come on. And so I went up to his brewery and worked with him to figure out the practical application of, you know, how do you brew? How do you move liquor from a hot liquor tank to your mash tun? What's the process? What, how do you work pumps? What, what, what's the engineering involved? And so, you know, when I say he was critical and he's my Jedi master, I mean, t- still to this day, I will call him and say, hey, I've got this issue. You know, how do you resolve that? And he's been an invaluable resource. resource. So that's incredible. So the thing that I find amazing is to go from in such a short period of time to being from being a lawyer to saying, all right, I'm going to open my brewery or actually for your wife saying you're going to open a brewery um, to enrolling at the the American Brewers Guild to in in having your first batch being the Velvet Hammer and then... (laughs) December 30th of 2011, batch one, brewed batch one. Yeah, it, that first batch, December 30th, and, and then winning all the awards that you've won. So uh, I, I printed out a, a list from your website of all of the awards that the Petticola's Brewery has won from the, the 2015 U.S. Open Beer Championship for Scottish Ale, for Irish Red Ale, for Imperial Red Ale, for... English Pale Ale, all the way down, but you started winning awards in 2011, 2012. Yeah. 2012 for your English style Pale Ale. I mean, you went from complete novice to gold medal status in such a short period of time. What do you attribute that to? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I still feel uh, super fortunate, you know, but. Uh, there's a lot of different factors. There are a lot of different factors there. One is like literally seriously having a solid business plan, right? Um, but two, understanding the process of beer making. You know, uh, you, it's easy to just open up a brewery and put out a product, but it, it's, it's a different thing to put out a product that is quality. And it's not just about a quality product, but it's about a consistent product, right? So, you know, the one of the not Greg, but one of the brewmasters who taught me in school, he said something that really resonated with me that I share with people all the time, which is, man, the best thing you can do is make a great beer and make a great beer consistently. The next best thing you could do is make a bad beer and make a bad beer consistently. The worst thing you can do is make a beer that is sometimes good and sometimes bad. And the reason it resonated with me is I really thought about that. And I'm like, yeah, he's right. I mean, his point was, even if you make a bad beer, if it's the same every single time, if you find a market, people will buy it. And I started thinking, yeah, that's right. I mean, Bud, Miller, Coors, I don't like that beer. I don't think it's... It's lucky lager. Right, it's terrible. But but I don't care if I'm in New York or San Francisco or Michigan and I open a Bud, it's going to taste exactly the same every single time. And so consistency to me was just massive. But then on top of that, it's about quality. I mean, part of it is my name is on my beer, right? I opened up a brewery that has my name on it, which... A lot of good things about that. Some maybe not so good, but uh, you know, I'm like, my name is on this. It's going to go out, and it's going to be you know superior quality. My goal was to be like a brewery that, like Avery, that all of their beers are good, not just a single beer in the lineup, but every single beer is good. So that when Pedicolis makes a beer, you know, you can rely on that thing to be good, regardless of whether you've ever had it before or not. That's how I feel about Nuclearis Brewing, Avery Brewing Company, and you know, it's it. It's probably a little bit uh, unique, my story. I mean, you're right. I, I brewed that first beer December 30th of 2011. Velvet Hammer started distributing in January. Royal Scandals, our English Pale Ale. I put that thing out in the market, and 40 days later, that thing literally won the biggest award you can win in the industry. I mean, if you're an it's if, huge. If you're an actor, you want to win an Oscar, right? If the you're, first if, time out of the game. Yeah, almost. if, if mean, you're it's... a brewer, you want to win a gold medal at the Great American Beer Festival, and that's what we did. And I mean, you're exactly right. A gold medal is an objective measure that you're making a world class beer that you are so making. So did you stand on a podium like at the Olympics? Yeah, had the flag up and abiding my medal. You you better believe it, Rob. I'm doing tears, all of that. Tears rolling I, down I, your I, cheek and I, everything. Frankly, I couldn't believe it. I was somewhat in shock, but you know, it really validated what Melissa had said, what her thought was, because so early in on the process, I mean, as I mentioned, when I opened up, you know, when I'm writing that plan, there were two breweries, right? Right now, there's about 35 breweries here. But we were first, we were early in, you know, it was very easy to distinguish yourself. I mean, they're yeah. writing stories about me in Dallas Morning News and D Magazine, all the local publications. So my name's getting out there, right? But now you open up 
um, how are you distinguishing yourself from all these other guys that came before you? They're not getting any attention from any of the magazines. Right. You just don't hear about it anymore. There are so many of them. But I've been very fortunate to win some of those awards. But, but um, it took me a long time, boys. Uh, I really did not. A brewer is it's typically his own or her own harshest critic. And I literally, even through all the awards, through everything, never gave myself credit until last year. Um, we have a double IPA called Sit Down or I'll Sit You Down. And actually a funny story behind the name for that beer. But um, the day before, I came home and I was drinking a New Glare Screaming Eagle, which is a double IPA. That's one of the breweries I just mentioned to you that to me mm-hmm. is like, you know, top of the top. And I'm thinking, man, this thing's just fantastic. This is, God, I love these guys that make the best damn beer. It's so good. Well, the next day I came home and I poured a sit down and I'm walking from my garage to my back door and I'm just drinking this beer. I'm like, Dang, this thing is good. This is this is equal to that screaming eagle I was drinking. And then all of a sudden I stopped. I'm like, wait, did you just think compare this beer to, you know, who you view as, you know, the gold standard? And uh, you know, it kind of opened up for me on that day. I'm like, you know what, dude, it's time to give yourself a little bit of credit. Yeah. And maybe you're making some half decent beer here. But it took me, you know, three years before I pat patted myself on the back and said, you know what? You are making some good beer. I mean, enough people have told you that, but it's always, hey, yeah, yeah, this, this, that, that. But finally, I'm like, okay, all right, maybe I'm making a half decent so, beer. So. so you mentioned uh, the come and take it. So I, I got to ask you from, so we heard about Alfred Brown and the ghost of Alfred Brown, of how you came up with those names. But you got come and take it. Uh, Golden Opportunity and the Velvet Hammer are probably your two most popular beers. But you've got Sit Down or I'll Sit You Down, The Thrilla in Brazilla. Great Scott, Royal Scandal, Irish Goodbye, Black Curtains, The Duke, A Lost Epic, Riot On, and this wonderful intervention that you brought over tonight, which is awesome, by the way. It, how, it is fantastic. How do you come up with the names for the pair? Because there's some great names. Yeah, uh, it's, I, I appreciate that because there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and you know, I, would, first, I would expect first, there's a lot of trademark analysis. Yeah, too. for sure. First and foremost, you know, I wanted to brand the brewery, right? So Pedicles Brewing, I came up with all these other ideas. You know, I go, I kind of laugh now because I go back and look at my list of brewery names before any of this had started. And guess what I have on the list? Deep Ellum, Lakewood, White Rock, you know, all these names that, you know, somewhat came, but I kind of took my cue um, also from the medical community. They're awesome. They make up names like Zocor, you know. They just make up <laughs> stuff, and, and you remember Viagra. it. Yeah. And so I went to law school with a buddy of mine named Doug Ames, who is really my closest kind of confidant in terms of when I was writing the business plan, when I was spitballing names. And one day he's like, dude, name it Pedicle. It's, I mean, your name's awesome. Uh, and you know, people, I've always, in, I've always liked my last name. I always thought it's cool, but it had a flaw, you know, until you hear it pronounced pedicles, it's kind of, you know, how do you say that? Is it, how do you say that? You know, people would struggle over how, you know, you, you pronounce it, which I was like, man, I don't know if I can name it that, but it, I mean, people should be able to pronounce your brand name, right? I mean, that's yeah. kind of critical, yeah. but I, then I flashed back to drinking a Lagunitas, a Lagunitas beer, and I remember looking on the label, and it's had it phonetically spelled. It said "Say Lagunitas," and I thought, you know what? If those guys can do it, I can do it. And you know, just recently, I read a story from their fine founder who said, you know, you have a name like Lagunitas, and people have trouble understanding it or pronouncing it. But once they learn to pronounce it, then they've kind of bought into it. Right, right. now, yeah. they're right. in the know, and that's how you know you kind of connect to people. So. You know, he talked me into it. I'm like, yeah, actually, I can brand that all my own. You know, I thought about Zenith. I thought Zenith was a pretty cool name, but I could not get those old 70s TVs out of my head, right? right. I, I just kept thinking of those old Zenith TVs, so I couldn't go there. So it was about branding it as Pedicles Brewing Company. But then between Doug and myself, we've probably come up with all but maybe three of those names. My wife has come up with one. His wife has come up with one. But, you know, some are much, it, I struggle with it because the names, you know, the best names are those that, uh, are descriptive of the beer, um, but still, you know, sometimes have a double meaning. Uh, velvet Hammer, I think, is the perfect example. You know, it's it when you think of velvet, you know, you all people smooth, think about a red velvet, smooth, yeah. that smooth red velvet. Hammers. You look at that color, right? And then hammer, the thing's strong. So the joke has always been, yeah, it's smooth as velvet, but it hits you like a hammer. It's nine percent. Oh, it's massively yeah. strong, but it's very descriptive of what that beer is. And those are the best names. Wintervention. I thought, oh, that's a great name. I mean, it's an intervention, yeah. but it's winter. Wintervention. 
Um, a trust, lost us, trust us, we are branding experts. You're on the Insignificant Others podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. Yes, y'all should be telling me. Y'all should be schooling me on how to name <laughs> no, these no. beers. But you've got great. You know, people. a lot of them come up with family. A lost epic. That's an anagram of Pedicolis. Um, sit down, or I'll sit you down. I kind of reference that. That's, there's a funny story behind that. My brother. I've got two brothers. One of them is, uh, or at the time, he was a cop in Albuquerque. And uh, this was like in the late 90s. And so the show Cops comes around and follows him around, you know. And so he's on three episodes of Cops. And so he he, <laughs> he travels up here. And my other brother lives in Dallas as well. And so he says, ah, oh, we're going to watch these episodes of Cops. We're going to watch these. I'm like, all right, fine. So, you know, we watched the first episode. It's pretty darn boring, you know. All right, yeah, I've seen cops before. It's the same old thing, except you're the cop. Right, cool, I get it. Uh, you know, we watched the second episode and pretty much more of the same. And then the third episode, for some reason, this scene really struck us as funny. I mean, we're sitting there, and my brother Charlie's walking up to this guy, and he's like, hey, he's got his baton kind of drawn. He's like, sit down. And just no response. The dude's standing there. He's like, sit down. No response. Just standing there. Sit down. No response. And then all of a sudden, Charlie goes, sit down or I'll sit you down. And that dude just sat <laughs> as fast as could be. But and right after, is born. Right, but right after he said that, my brother and I, we started laughing. We started laughing so hard. And so for the next 10 years, that's been like a big family joke. Sit down or I'll sit you down. So when it came time to name a big, I mean, that's a 10% beer with a ton of hops in it. I'm like, hey, that's a perfect name for that beer. Sit down or I'll sit you down. And I, I mean, people love that name. When I'm at festivals, people will stop. And they'll be like, oh, God, I want to try that. Sit down or I'll sit you down. I think it's the best beer we brew. Everyone loves Velvet Hammer. That's our biggest seller. But, uh, you know, I think that beer is so fantastic. You know, people stop for the name, but it actually holds up to that name. It's a fantastic beer. So we're, we're, we're coming up on the four-year anniversary, right? So yeah. December yeah. 30th. That's right. Yeah, we're having a huge party on December 26th. So when you, when, you, uh, when you open up, you know, the doors for business... Uh, it's just you and, from what I understand, uh, some generous volunteers that helped you build the brewery to what it is today. So well, tell, tell us how, I mean, you know, how yeah. that happened. People came out of the woodworks to volunteer. <laughs> and, now, yeah. and now I would assume that some of those folks are your full-time employees now. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer you know, believe this, believe it or not, I like to do kind of things a little bit differently than most. I'm very unconventional. Um, I'm big on differentiation, doing things differently than other people, right? I mean, it's got to make our product unique, be different. So I'm always looking for ways to do things a little bit differently. And I literally worked at the brewery by myself for the first year. I mean, I, I brewed the beer, I cellared the beer, I kegged the beer, I put it in the cooler, I delivered it. I remember taking my wife's Volvo XC90 on deliveries, right? You know, I did it all. But yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, again, there were no breweries around. So I started opening up and I started getting these emails. Hey, man, I think beer is cool. I want to learn more about beer. And it's like, all right, hell, I need some help. So come on in. And, you know, before you know it, I've just kind of got an army of volunteers that are helping me, you know, not only during the brew days, but, you know, it's open up for a tour and they would help us on the weekends. And then, yeah, so what ended up happening is I it became a very lengthy interview process. Um, to this day, I've not hired, I mean, so I worked by myself for that first year and I hired my first guy who was a volunteer and then I've now done that nine times. You know, there's nine employees that I have. Every single one of them started off as a volunteer. Um I've always felt like it's a those guys are already invested in what I do. Yeah. They want to know about me. And it, it's like this ridiculously lengthy interview process where they get to learn about what our culture is and I get to learn about them and understand what their work ethic is and our work ethic and whether we'll be a good fit. So I haven't had to go through like resumes. Oh, let's call this guy. Let's talk to him. Let's interview. I get resumes. I'm like, dude, I can't glean. I can glean a little bit of information off this resume, yeah. but nothing like I can, you know, this guy who came and worked for, you know, six weeks, one day a week, or two months, or a year, you know, once every month or so. Those are the guys I really get to know, and they're proving themselves. So, yeah, automatically I go hire those guys, and then, believe it or not, not a single one of us has ever worked in another brewery before. Wow. Yeah, not a single one of us. So, you know, these guys, with my first hire, you know, I watched some of my fellow North Texas brewers around here. Hey, we hired up a brewer from Stone. We hired up a brewer from Dogfish Head. And I thought to myself, well, we've been fairly successful um, without hiring any of those guys, kind of doing things my way. And I was a little bit leery of hiring someone who uh, would come in here and try to tell us, oh, man, you need to change your processes. You need to do this or you need to do that. Um, I'm always up for changes for the better, but I didn't necessarily want to listen to someone who thought 
they knew better than I did. I wanted someone who wanted to grow with me. And so as a result, I've continued to tap into my volunteers and, you know, don't regret it one bit. They're just killing it. So four years later, uh, how much beer are you brewing now? So, you know, from when you started year, year one, two, three, four, what, what, what is the growth and production? Yeah, sure. So in, um, in uh, the brewing industry, really, you measure your production in barrels, barrels of beer. A barrel is, you know, if you think of a keg, a traditional keg, a half-barrel keg, if you think back to your kind of dorm parties or college parties or whatever, that, you know, big stainless uh, steel keg, that is a half-barrel keg. That's 15.5 gallons. It's much larger than this growler of velvet hammer. That I'm about to, yes, yes. That I'm about, excuse me, about to pour for breakfast. About 15 of the, yeah, enjoy some hammer, and there's a little... You got a little intervention left, but yeah, pour that hammer. Maybe I'll have some. Talk about the name Growler for just a second. That's kind of a disturbing name for a container. I don't know. You don't like Growler? Growler? Well, yeah, I mean, Growler. I mean, you take a Growler, but you don't drink from a Growler. (laughs) I I never even really thought about that. I never had a problem with it. I thought it was a good name, but yeah. I don't have a problem, especially if my Growler has beer in it. Yes, that's the the preferred method. Oh, no, 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 no. Please interrupt. Let's give us some good content here. Interrupt as often as you like. So so a barrel. Yeah, yeah. so a barrel barrel is 31 gallons of beer. In in year one, we did 800 uh, barrels of beer. In year two, we did 2,000 barrels of beer. And then we did 3,500 barrels last year. And this year, we'll probably do 4,500 barrels right around there. And so are are you tracking fairly close to your business plan in terms of what you had projected out? Or are you... Are I'm actually a little bit. Project, I, I'm, I'm a little bit past what my projections okay. were on my business plan. You know, I was actually kind of surprised how close I was uh, because I think a lot of people who write business plans are overly optimistic, right? Oh, we're going to kill it. We're going to blow it out of the water, and things have gone much more uh, smoothly and much better than I ever would have anticipated. Um, but when I go back and actually look at my plan, you know. Uh, I'm only doing slightly better than what my business plan was, even though I feel like this thing could not be going any better for me. Okay, so we talked about this a little bit before the podcast started. You bought this wonderful Wintervention. Wintervention, I wouldn't anywhere come close to saying that I'm a craft beer aficionado. Matter we'll we'll fact, change that. No, you're changing it. You're changing it just by by tasting this Wintervention. So... We talked about it. It's really smooth. It doesn't have. Uh, it, it. It's not bitter. It's not. And I'm not a big fan of wheat beers. So the Hefeweizen. I don't. I don't like those. The Wintervention's really good. But it's interesting because Rob just poured me some of this Velvet Hammer, and I've had Velvet Hammer before. But going from one to the other now, there is that bitterness, but it's still really smooth. Yeah. So explain a little bit about the whole process of coming up with a recipe and developing a new one and, and how that all goes, because I think that's really fascinating of, you say, okay, I want to develop this. How do I do it? Because you, you talked a little bit about that with Wintervention. Yeah, well, a couple, a couple things there. Actually, let me just kind of step back and talk about generally where we've kind of made our mark. Um, and again, when I talk about differentiation, something that we do that's a little different than most is what we've kind of become known for is making these high alcohol beers that don't necessarily come across as high alcohol, right? Like a lot of high alcohol beers you have, you'll get this kind of ethanol-y or solventy burn from it. Um, and you can tell, oh man, that's just that's some straight alcohol, man. There's some ethyl acetate in there or something. (laughs) Where were these beers when I needed them when I was in college? Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) They were, they were around, but they just were more expensive. So we couldn't afford them. So 45. Yeah. uh, So I've kind of developed a knack and have developed a specific enjoyment for brewing these beers that are high alcohol that don't necessarily come across as having a lot of high alcohol. I mean, to me, velvet hammer probably exemplifies best uh, my Brewing style. Um, that beer is all about balance. Um, you know, when I first really opened, someone said PBC Pedicles Balanced Company, and I really kind of latched onto that and thought, "Yeah, that's great," because it's all about balance for me. Beer, you know, again, one of my sons says, uh, he said, "I don't care what your beer is if it's not balanced, I'm not going to like it." So for me, I mean, that beer has just a ton of malt in it, right? It's very malt forward. However, it's got 
massive amount of hops in it. It's got as much uh, hop in it as your typical IPA, which really balances out that malt side to it. So it doesn't come across as a malty beer. It doesn't come across as a hoppy beer. It really straddles that fence between hoppy and malty um, just perfectly, you know, just really right down the center of that line, which makes it especially drinkable for a 9% beer. You know, people drink those things not having any idea. You know, I go to parties and and I remember this guy turning around one time. He's like, I've had five Velvet Hammer. And I'm like, what? Goes, I have five, five Velvet Hammer. I'm like, oh, my God, no, this is really bad. And so then when I tell people, that's 9%, man. That's like drinking twice as much as a normal beer. You know, like, oh, man. But I kind of, I love that. I love that fact to brew these high alcohol beers that don't necessarily come across as high alcohol. You know, that's a good example of one. Wintervention that we're drinking is a good example. A bunch of my beers are well, the, the Duke, so- Sit Down. So when you start, though, with you, okay, like, oh, let's, yeah. let's talk about right. invention, because yeah. I think that's a great story of, of you said, I want to brew a traditional winter beer. How yeah. do you come up with the recipe? Okay, good. Yeah. And I'm um, sorry, I didn't even, uh, you know, I've got a problem of going off on my own and no. not always answering no. the question that was that's asked. That's why you're so, a great uh, guest. Yes, I'm good. I'm, I'm glad you brought me back to, you know, that's answering you, the action. That's why you put the shot collar on you before you started. <laughs> I, I, I'm not re- turn up the turn up the heat. I'm not responding to the shock anymore. Uh, but so my process is um, I go to the Great American Beer Festival style guidelines. So when I say, yeah, all right, I want to brew in this, let's talk about Wintervention since you asked about that beer specifically. Uh, let's brew a spiced ale. I go to the Great American Beer Festival's um, uh, descriptions of what that beer should be. And then I kind of walk work backwards from there. And in this case, it should be a beer that has, you know, uh, quite a bit of malt character to it, right? Uh, it tells you how the beer should look, what color. You know, this is very dark, right? It's much darker even than your yeah. um, velvet hammer. And then it tells you, you know, what it should smell like. I mean, because you're really, you're using four senses to drink a beer. I mean, you're judging that beer before it ever hits your lips. The second right. you see it, you're forming opinions on it. So these descriptions tell you all about aroma, flavor, um, mouthfeel. I mean, people don't think about the sense of touch, and that actually affects, I mean, that's a big player i mean how does it feel in your mouth what's the what's the tactile sensation that your mouth your tongue is experiencing how do you control that though in the brewing process well a malt right i mean malt really controls the mouthfeel, right and then hop is how you balance it out but this beer in, in particular is a beer that you know it's not supposed to have you know typically you're hopping your beer on three different occasions initially for bitterness and then secondly to give it hop flavor and then lastly to give it a hop arona so wintervention if we're talking about that that style that spiced ale and this is a, I call it a dark, strong, spiced ale, um, does not have, it has very low bitterness, so low yeah. bittering hop, very low hop flavor, so small amount of Golding's hop per flavor, and then no hop aroma at all. We don't throw any hops in there on that third occasion that you're typically throwing in aroma hop. Instead, guess what we do? We walk about 45 steps out of our front door to a little Pendry's Spice Shop just down the street from our brewery, and we pick up ginger, cinnamon, allspice, and nutmeg, kind of your typical Christmassy, you know, uh, spices that are, you know, you enjoy throughout the season all the way through Thanksgiving. And instead of throwing an aroma hop, we throw those spices in there, and that's what gives it that, you know, I'm smelling my beer now, really, really wonderful kind of Christmassy smell to it. But then that carries over into the flavor as well. So, you know, you get that nice, deep maltiness that's balanced out by that awesome spice. It's a great beer. It's not bitter at all. That's usually uh, very I don't like those because it's just like a punch in the face. Yeah, and that's I've never so had, smooth. I've never had one revention until tonight, and it's it's now my favorite. But now I want to have... You know, sit down or I'll sit you down because you said that's your favorite. It is my favorite beer. But Wintervention, it, it will really hold a special place in my heart. I mean, again, we kind of came onto the craft beer beer scene a little bit sooner than a lot of these guys. And we had, you know, Velvet Hammer was kind of a home run from the, from the day beginning. that we released it. I mean, that happened at the Meddlesome Moth. And I remember it was the rainiest day. And I remember wheeling up that Velvet Hammer thinking, oh, my God, I hope this isn't just a terrible, you know, this isn't a blunder, just awful. And... It was raining so damn hard, and I couldn't believe how packed that place was. It was just packed, and, you know, right out the get-go, I mean, they were just pouring that beer, and they poured two kegs, and the guy told me later, he's like, man, you didn't hit a home run right out the gate. You hit a grand slam. This thing, we've never poured this much beer this fast. I did the math calculation. They were pouring a velvet hammer every 30 seconds the day we released well, it. It's, 
it's interesting that you said that because when I when I bought uh, our growlers uh, for tonight of Velvet Hammer, I talked to the guy at Central Market who I guess opened up that bar there, and I asked him. I said, "Well, how well does Pedicola sell compared to the other beers?" He goes, "Yeah, when I first opened this place up, you know, our goal was not to dedicate a tap to a particular brewery or brewer." Um, but uh, what's happened is that Pedicolis, the Velvet Hammer, is a dedicated tap. Yeah, I love which hearing is that. Amazing. Yeah, it's great. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I love hearing those stories, and a lot of the stories I love hearing even more are when they take it off and then they call me up and like, "Dude, we took off Velvet Hammer, and we almost had a riot. We almost had a riot in here. <laughs> People are freaking out." And so, you know, and that was all. That's kind of my customer value proposition. It's like, right? You know, hell, I mean, riots, you're gonna make more money. I, I want riots in year four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So what? So you, we've named the, the 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 various beers that you you have out there. So how how many total are there right now, or at any given point during a year? I know that you have several seasonal, but but how many beers do you brew in a year? God, I feel like there was a question I didn't finish answering, but let me answer this one. So we have three beers that we do full-time. We do Velvet Hammer, Royal Scandal, Golden Opportunity, all throughout the year, always. And then we always have at least one limited release beer in addition to those, sometimes two, sometimes three. I mean, during North Texas Beer Week in October, I think we had eight. So I think we brewed... God, I'm losing track. That's terrible. I think we've brewed 16 beers now. We're, we'll do our 17th or our 15, and we're doing our 16th for our anniversary. We do a beer for our anniversary every year. So we've got another beer that'll come out here in a couple of days. Um, so 16, give or take one. Yeah, but right? typically, like right now, we probably have the three core beers, Hammer, Royal Scandal, uh, Golden Opportunity, and then we have Alfred Brown available as well as Wintervention and a Lost Epic. But But... What, what, I mean, is, is, I'm assuming that the answer is yes. So I'm going to answer the question that I'm going to ask you right now. But, yes. but you have an R&D pipeline. Is, I mean, is, you know, beers that you're concocting in your head, drawing up, uh, does that pipeline exist? What, yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes and no. I mean, that pipeline does kind of exist, but it just kind of exists in my head, yes, right? It's like, yes. hmm, now I want to brew, like, I want to do an English strong. I'm dying to do an English strong ale, but I can't think of a good name. I can't think of a good enough name. I want to we'll call it, I want to call it Iron Lady. I thought that's great, right? Margaret Thatcher, it's English, it's a strong ale. Well, that's not the problem. It's that RAR in Fort Worth, they have a beer called Iron Joe, and I don't want to step on their toes, right? I mean, it's yeah. too right. close. And then a buddy of mine's like, how about Iron, comma, lady? <laughs> which, I, which I thought was fu- kind of funny. Uh, but, you know, I, I want to brew that beer um, and just haven't done it because I don't have a name for it yet. But uh, the other part of that is that I listen to the market, right? I, ne- I didn't really want to brew an IPA because everybody brews an IPA, but I just ran into person after person after person saying, brew an IPA, brew an IPA, brew an IPA, and that's when I brewed sit down or I'll sit you down. So if I have enough people saying, Do I want something. this style of beer, so and I'm going to brew it. Cues. So, in those limited release beers, the more I hear, like, sit down or I'll sit you down, I'll probably make that a full time beer this upcoming year because people go crazy for that beer. I mean, they love that beer. And so, that, I, I really try to respond to the market and say, ah, okay. this is what the market wants. So, let's so, brew that beer. So, how do you start with the process? Do you make like a five gallon batch of it? And yeah, I mean, it? that's what I used to do before. I mean, a lot of the beers that I had that I have brewed and have released that, yeah, I was brewing in my backyard back, you know, before but, but, I ever opened a brewery. But now I, you know, like Wintervention is really the kind of first example of a beer that I had never brewed before. I wrote the recipe and said, I'm not going to brew this on my five gallon batch. Let's go brew 30 barrels of this beer and let's see if it works. And fortunately it worked. If it didn't, I would just throw it down the drain. I wouldn't tell anybody. So Speaking. what's the smallest batch you can brew to try it out? Uh, I mean, you could brew, I guess, theoretically any size. The smallest I ever did was a two and a half gallon batch. Okay. So my question is, which is ridiculously small. Five gallons is typically where you're going to go. So you, you put together the recipe and say, this is what I want it to taste like. And this recipe, I think it's going to taste like it. Then you take a drink of it. And and at that point you're, you're going yay or nay. It's a go, no go situation of I'm going to release it or I'm not going to. So how small do you start? Before you make that decision. Well, I mean, that's that's what I'm trying to convey. Like Velvet Hammer, uh, when I brewed that beer at home, every time I brewed it, people were like, dude, that's awesome. I've never had anything like this, you know. So that was, uh, again, kind of listening to the market, Rob. 
I'm like, well, that, that's the first beer I'm going to brew. In fact, kind of a funny story, and I digress again, but I remember I sat down with a distributor one day. It's like, ah, what beer are you going to do first? I'm like, ah, I'm going to do this Imperial Red Ale. And he goes, oh, reds don't sell. I'm like, oh, God, great. Well, the first beer I'm going to do is, uh, you know, this distributor, a guy who for a living sells beer, he's like, oh, man, reds don't sell. I'm like, great, that's the beer I happen to pick. But, you know, I didn't listen to him, and I went for it and brewed that anyways. And, uh, you know, that same guy has since said, reds don't sell except for one. Uh, so I always took that as a, you know, kind of a moral victory for myself. But, yeah, uh, you know, either I have brewed it in the past and I'm going to bring it out like an alt. I haven't released an alt yet. I've brewed an alt. I've got a, I've got a name for an alt. What's, uh, a, what's an alt? Um, an alt is a German old ale. Okay. Um, really more about malt than about hop. Um, but, uh, you know, not a lot of people drink alts. I'll probably get to it at some point. And when I brew that beer, it'll be the little five-gallon recipe I did. But when I did Wintervention, when I did... Thriller in Brazil, those were recipes that I hadn't done at home. I just was like, well, I educated myself. Let's uh, write a recipe and keep our fingers crossed and hope this thing turns out the way you anticipate it will. And, you know, fortunately, it has. Uh, if it didn't, then literally I would just open up the valve and I would let it go down the drain and I would never announce to the public that I was going to release an IPA. So how much, how much beer do you end up tossing because it doesn't meet your quality standards. Not all that much, but you know, it's never. Um, I mean, there's there's a few batches every year. We do very serious sensory analysis. We call it sensory analysis in the brewery. You know, part of you know one of the beauties of my job is we drink beer. That's part of our job is drinking beer. So we're tasting it from the minute we brew it all the way through the fermentation process. And you know, it doesn't happen all that often. But if you know, there's really two of us that are very, very good at it. If one of us has an issue with the beer, um, we kind of wait to see if any of the other guys on, you know, basically everyone in the brewery is a sensory panelist. And, you know, we wait to see if those guys notice anything because part of my deal is I'm trying to teach them, hey, man, there's something, and more often than not, they don't even catch it. But, you know, between me and, you know, my head brewer, Chris, the, my first hire, Chris Martinez, uh, if, you know, we don't think it's up to snuff, then, you know, we'll put it down the drain. It's it's fairly infrequent, but I would rather toss it than put an inferior product out yeah. in the market. So I'm going to switch gears on you here a little bit. Oh, no. Explain to me why it's not available in bottles or cans. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm waiting for that question. There's, I, I could teach a seminar on this. I don't know how much time we have in response to that question, but a number. There are a number of reasons. Number one, first and foremost, I think I'm trying to convey to you it's all about quality. Beer's got to be awesome, right? And the beer is best in a keg. It is going to be better. It's kind of like wine. The more, beer, the more wine it touches, the better it's going to be. Draft beer is superior to bottled beer. I mean, go to the grocery store and you see these really cool, awesome displays You know, of these mountains of ke- cases of beer, and they're just sitting at 72 degrees, right? You yeah. know, what's, know what's happening to that beer? It's degrading. Yeah. It's getting worse. So initially, it's about quality. I want, I mean, the beer nerds, they know my beer. But if I just stop the next guy driving down the street, you know, they're not, and I say, hey, man, what's your favorite pedicle? Spear is going to say, what did you just say? What's pedicles? I don't even know what you're talking about. So my goal was to actually saturate the market, get in the market so that everyone knows my beer before I ever get into a bottle or can, right? Because as I mentioned, craft beer drinkers are finicky. If that first drink of beer isn't any good, they're not going to come back to it. Uh, and just by way of example, I've had a local brewer's beer that I love, right? And my wife brings home a six-pack one day. I pop open one of the bottles. I start to drink, and I'm like, oh, gosh, man, this thing isn't anywhere close. I didn't even finish drinking it. I went and poured myself a Royal Scandal from the garage. But the point I'm trying to make is I knew that beer is good, right? So I'm going to continue to buy it because I know it's awesome. But if it had been just a normal consumer who drank that beer and thought, hmm, that's my first experience with that beer. It's not really up to snuff. That's a terrible, terrible reaction uh, to have that first right. drink. So that's first and foremost why I don't do it. Secondly, I self-distribute. I distribute all of my own beer, right? I don't have a distributor. In fact, I'm suing the state of Texas in, connect, in connection with some anti-craft beer legislation dealing with distribution. Um, but distributing nice big kegs of 15.5 or 5.16 gallons of beer is much more simple 
than delivering your cases of beer. When I take a beer to Medicine Moth or Banditas, right, they know us. They, they're making great margins on their beer sales. I mean, we kind of have a relationship with those guys. They enjoy you. Once you start selling your beer to Kroger or TomTom, they don't care about you. You're one of right. 10,000 brands in there, right? So there's no more personal connection. So, you know, getting beer, all they want is you get your butt here, you get your shelf straight, and get out of here, right? And so uh, that's another reason. You know, thirdly, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when most people zig, I zag, right? Everybody yes, now, all these uh, all these guys are opening up breweries now, and they're immediately bottling or canning right out of the get-go. I'm a big believer that on-premise sales, keg beer, is what really spurs your off-premise sales, your bottles and cans. And so um, I, I, I just until I'm, you know, fully saturated in the market, I'm not too interested in going that route. And what I've also learned is the longer I wait, the bigger deal it's going to be because I don't bottle and can. When I do bottle and can, it's just going to explode. People are asking for it. I mean, I knew this question was coming because I always get it. When are you going to bottle? When are you going to can? And the longer I don't do it, the more people are going to want it and the bigger deal it's going to be once I go ahead and bite the bullet and do it. Is is that kind of the same reason that your distribution is limited? So so I looked up on your website. Your availability is basically from Waxahachie to Denton, north and south, and then from East Dallas to West Fort Worth. Yeah, that's and exactly that's, that's exactly right. I mean, we say you know we distribute beer thirty nine miles from my brewery. Um, uh, and I kind of took my cue from we, right? You know, I remember a long time ago, oh, the hottest gift for Christmas, it's a we, and it's impossible to get it, and it's flying off the shelves. And then the next Christmas came by, and I'm seeing the same story. Oh, hottest gift to get this Christmas is a we. People can't get it. And then the next Christmas came by, hottest gift to get is the we. It's selling like mad. And I'm like, how the hell can that be? I mean, it's been three years. Why don't they have the production? I mean, don't they have this figured out? And then it dawned on me. It's not they don't have it figured out. They do it on purpose, right? The demand's bigger than the supply so that people are going nuts, right, when it gets there. So that's kind of what I've learned, the exact same thing. I've got a laundry list, you know, very, very long of folks in San Antonio and Houston and Austin that have called and wanted our beer. Um, And so when I go into that market, I won't go into one location. I'll go into 10, 15, 20 locations, right? And the longer I'm not there, the more they want it, right? Right, right. And so the more they want it, the more successful it's going to be. And then also I want to be able to service that, right? I want, I mean, for you've got to have a superior product, but you've got to have superior service to go along with it. And until you have the ability to service those accounts, like I can service the accounts here, I think it'd be a disservice to those guys because I want to provide them the exact same quality product and service down there that they're getting up here. So that'll happen one day as well. Um, I just, I'm not in a hurry. For me, it's about slow, sustained growth. I'd rather do things properly than quickly. It, it's, a, it's a great story, Michael. Thank you so much for being here. It's a, and it's a great beer. Really appreciate it. Are we done? I've got like two more hours worth of content. Oh no, I'm God. just kidding. No, no, no. This, is, this is part one of the podcast. It's got to be part okay, one. Right, part great, one. Great. Yeah, it's got to be part one. Thank you so much for being here. You know, as much as anything, what I really appreciate it is... I think what every man, especially, hopes to do is just chase their passion. And you've yeah. done that in a tremendous way and in an award-winning way. And thank you for bringing the intervention. It's, it's, to me, it's been eye-opening. And, and then the uh, velvet hammer that we've got. Mer- Merry fantastic. Christmas, Brett. That's my Christmas gift to you. Yeah, hey, thank I you appreciate very much. I, I really brought you a Merry big Christmas. old growler of... of Velvet Hammer. We'll turn off these I, I would, mics and we'll drink some of that. I would prefer if you leave a growler at home. And not, no, it, the growler was great. Thank you so much. And, and, and Michael, thanks for being here. Again, everybody, please, you can hear us on SoundCloud, iTunes. Go to our Facebook page, like us, give us your feedback, who you want to hear. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks Thank for you. having me. I really, really appreciate it. And best of luck to you guys. Yeah.